I have absolutely no idea what we're doing here, or what I'm doing here, or what this place is about, but I am determined to enjoy it. Now you want to talk about reading? Let's talk about reading. Let me tell you of the days of high adventure. The book served as a passageway to the evil worlds beyond. Ready to go, Doc? Oh, yes, yes, my dear fellow. I'll just check the gyroscopes. Hello, and welcome back to the Appendix N Book Club. I'm your co-host, Hoy, and with me, as always, is that Patrakian, but tall and slim nonetheless, co-host, <laughs> Jeff Goad. <laughs> hey, what, what are you saying about my froggy mouth? <laughs> Nothing that people haven't already been saying for a while. <laughs> and this week, we are honored to have special guest from the Great White North, Oliver Brackenberry. Hey, guys. Hey, Hi, Oliver. Uh, and Oliver is a novelist and screenwriter, most notably of Junkyard Leopard and of Dyson Men, and also a ho- the host of the podcast Unknown Worlds of Merrill Collection. And by the way, Oliver, that Afro Futurism episode was fantastic. Oh, thank um, you very I, much. I learned so much from that episode. So I oh, it was easy with a guest like Quentin. He really knew his stuff. Right, right. You've made my reading list like three years longer now, though. So. <laughs> 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 yeah. Oh dear. All right. So, uh, all right, Oliver. Secret origin time. How did you get into speculative fiction and into role-playing? I feel like I should be saying, you know, The Hobbit and The Big Red Box. But uh, no, neither of those things. Um, uh, (laughs) (laughs) uh, No offense to those who did get in that way. Um, For me, I would say the sort of gateway drug for both kind of Venn diagram overlap were the uh, Steve Jackson games advanced uh, fighting, or not advanced, I guess, but just fighting fantasy books that were kind Uh of like choose your own adventure, but you had a character sheet. uh, The very simple stats, skill and stamina. uh, And yeah, you would turn to paragraph 44 to fight the orc or whatever. Um, They had a very British sensibility death came easy <laughs> and uh, sardonically which i liked as a kid um and then uh yeah i mean i just read everything for a while uh so it's hard to say exactly where my fiction beginnings uh were uh but i do know things really lit on fire when i started reading william gibson who mm-hmm. had a huge effect on my gaming because i loved his very detailed descriptions of everything down to the like products that the characters were messing around with in their fictional universe which is why my players got to suffer through uh usually about half a page to one page long opening narratives i would write for all of my adventures right. uh, for a long time <laughs> really setting the scene um so like the long basically like the long first shot in blade runner when they're flying in on like the pyramid of <laughs> yeah yeah totally Totally, except it's like an 11 year old trying to like write read his amazing prose <laughs> for like- <laughs> Like, oh, it's really rainy, you guys. Yeah, you said that in the previous paragraph. Um, right. And so, yeah, I mean, I, the very beginning of RPGs for me, I think, was uh, my friend Steve in middle school introduced me to it through the Robotech RPG. Uh, okay. We may have also played the very first Aliens one. Uh, strangely, Dungeons & Dragons, I wouldn't play that for many years because, uh, I don't know, I just didn't know anybody playing it. I would see ads for stuff in comics and be like, Ravenloft, what's that? Um, and it just, I don't know, it never, it never made the connection. Shadowrun was my big one for a long time. Mm-hmm, and I got until I got to play um, three and a half, uh, three and a half. Okay, I just said that uh, three point five um, <laughs> <and laughs> once with a classic GM who started campaigns, never continued them. Um, and then, uh, yeah, I mean, I didn't really play fantasy. I did GURPS. I did Call of Cthulhu, uh, relevant to today's game. Mm-hmm. Uh, I, did, I ran a big cinematic Call of Cthulhu campaign and a big Delta Green campaign, which sure. I don't mm. think enough people know about Delta Green. Man, it's so oh no, good. it's phenomenal. Yeah, it's yeah, very yeah. fun. Yeah, yeah. What, um, what kind of games were you running in GURPS? 
Uh, GURPS, uh, I did one, sometimes it was my own thing. Like I did, uh, I love the Fallout computer games. So I made my own Fallout thing in, in, in my own state with that kind of stuff. Uh, there were tribals who rode long necks. So like uh, basically barbarians on giraffes. It was, it was good fun. Um, and uh, one of their settings, Reign of Steel, that was kind of like playing in the future setting of Terminator. Um, and oh, geez, more. I just can't remember. Uh, my, I, I, yeah. I, I kind of made my, mo- my own interdimensional thing right. uh, called Everything is Unthinkable. Yeah. Uh, so, yeah. but it was only very recently that I got into fantasy role play. Uh, with Beyond the Wall, which I super mm-hmm. recommend. It, weirdly, at the beginning of that book, they say, oh, this is for people who are experienced, but you don't have to be. You play a bunch of teenagers in a small village in kind of like an Ursula K. Le Guin type uh, right, right. take on fantasy. Or like Lloyd Alexander the- or something like that, that kind of vibe, right? Absolutely. One of the character yeah. classes is basically the pig keeper. Um, right, great. <laughs> so then, yeah, a friend of mine got me into DCC, and now I've got that disease. Uh, I've been running that uh, DCC, NCC, Wankmar. It's pretty much been all my RPG stuff for the last little while. And that's what also, uh, actually, that and you guys are responsible for me getting into the Appendix N. Oh, okay. Um, there you go. So, yeah, and it's been, I've been really lucky because I've had two great resources here in Toronto. I've had Sellers and Newell secondhand books for getting a hold mm-hmm. of my own copies uh, of various texts, including, uh, God damn, you guys, I have the entire run of the Lynn Carter Conans. They get so <laughs> bad. <laughs> um, but, but but i love them and i love you know and that's another literally another story um and uh and also um the thing that the pod name my podcast alludes to or my podcast um it's the volunteer groups uh the merrill collection of science fiction speculation and fantasy which is the western hemisphere's largest publicly accessible archive of genre fiction um is right here in toronto on the third floor of the living h smith library and even if you're not in toronto they it's worth checking them out online because they have a lot of digitized assets and this is right. where you can see like a first edition of Dracula if you want to see weird treasures. But also, I can, any edition you guys mention in an episode, I can go, oh, cool. And I'll go find, go there and be able to get that edition <laughs> and, and read that particular one. So, yeah, right. uh, until the pandemic, eh, uh, I was using them mostly to sort of chew through and unlock episodes of, uh, of this podcast. Right. Like, again, well, this is how I determined that New York is, in, in fact, not a world-class city, is that we don't have something like the Merrill. Well, we're very lucky. Yeah, no, right. it's it's a great, great resource. And, and right. of course, that's what the podcast uh, that I do is about. I mean, we, we're talking about we interview different guests um, uh, relevant to different genre topics. Right. And mm-hmm. with a focus on kind of the history, like how did we get to the modern stuff? Because I think there's just a tremendous value in studying the old works and knowing how we got to where we are now. Um, and uh yeah, 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 yeah. Anyway, I feel like I could talk forever. Sorry. That's why I have uh, listeners. Sorry, I'll embarrass myself here. I have index cards uh, to keep myself on track so I don't run all over the show. <laughs> That's uh, amazing. So, I love yeah. it. Uh, <laughs> I have a question for you. So I don't know if people are writing about our show more now or if I'm just coming across it. But what's funny is I've been coming across some criticisms of the Appendix N Book Club recently. Oh. And of course, like anything, they are completely contradictory with one another. Like some criticisms are like, why are people like, why, why do they feel like we should read these like old timey racist books that like nobody should be paying attention to? Um, and then on the other side, we have people being like, oh, look at the people who are acting all quote unquote woke and like talking about how problematic this stuff is. Yeah. They just need to get over it, like move on. And I guess my question for you is obviously those two different people are not going to be are not going to be agreeing on anything but i guess my question for you is what is the value in coming back to this literature and do you think it's important to talk about the ways in which the the fiction today the perception of it is potentially a problematic 
Well, uh, acknowledging that I am saying this is kind of the, the gold star of those authors in the sense that, like, I'm white, cis, straight, neurotypical. Like, I have nothing that would make me go bleh, like, as relevant to my personal experiences when reading those old texts. Like, I'm on easy mode reading those things. Uh, so owning that, I would say... Yeah, I mean, there's absolutely, you know, value. I mean, we study all kinds of religious history, and you want to talk about problematic. Uh, look at what the church was getting up to in 1300s or whatever, you know? <laughs> so so in that yeah. sense, like, it's easy for me to say that, but it's true. I think there's I think um, there's an element of kind of sifting through and just having to kind of, like, go, yeah, okay, and roll your eyes at, like, say, Robert Howard's unfortunate descriptions of, say, um, you know, what are meant to be a probably African characters uh, and that kind of thing and, and seek out what is of value and then kind of pull that out and leave the uh, cruft of the bigotry and so forth behind. Mm -hmm. um, because I, I do think it is a bit of a baby in the bathwater situation when we're talking about the truly uh, great names to just ignore them. Yeah. Um, and, 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 and I think... Uh, you can also create an intriguing dialogue with those past texts. I mean, to Lovecraft, obviously, the big hit single for this right now is Lovecraft Country, uh, you right. know, where the very first story in that is about a young uh, black man in, I want to say, the late 40s, uh, who is a Lovecraft fan. And he's like, I know, but, you know, um, about the whole thing. But if, mm -hmm. if, if the author of Lovecraft Country hadn't been willing to be that character, essentially, in life, um, he would have never written Lovecraft Country. And we wouldn't yeah. get to enjoy that amazing story. Right. Yeah. Well, or Charles Saunders in dialogue with Robert E. Howard. We would have yes, no tomorrow. Exactly. We wouldn't have no sword and soul genre. Yeah. Um, so I mean, I'm. It's interesting, Jeff. I had, I, you know, I expected the second criticism. You know, us, us being like, you know, woke jackasses. I hadn't heard the uh, other one about us. Why should we? Be, I mean, I expect a lot of people would be like right off the topic, but I hadn't heard a, a critique of us uh, as doing that. So yeah, yeah. Some, I, I think it was an iTunes review I just recently yeah. saw. That was like a one star yeah. iTunes review, and it's yeah. like. He's like, I gave, I gave a, I, I listened to, oh, and the person's name, I think was like 5e fan. Yeah. The text of it was something like, I listened to a few of these, but I don't understand what the point is. Like listening to all these like books that have nothing to do with what I'm playing. And like, yeah. I, I, yeah, I gotta say, I mean, that's to that guy, uh, because uh, that's this that, that's the kind of opinion that I feel displays an intellectual and curiosity. If you don't want to read these old texts because you find it painful to read old bigoted ideas, for example, woven through certain stories, particularly good old Lovecraft, who was just incandescent in some of his stories uh, with the racism, super legit. Like, nobody should have to read anything. But when I think you disregard an entire... Uh, decades and decades and dozens of authors of works uh, because you can't see the point, well, then that's just not wanting to learn and not understanding yeah. that you can, like, again, say, again, sift through, find really valuable stuff, and then draw it into enrich your own writing, gameplay, and just enjoying the stories, you know? Mm -hmm. um, so, yeah, I guess that's kind of where I sit on it. And, and I mean, I think you have done a very good job. I mean, it doesn't come up as much in more recent episodes, I think, because you've addressed it so much in the earlier ones, but... Um, as I recall, your take on this issue sounded about right to me, which was we're not going to spend a lot of our time apologizing for these old authors' bigotry because we know, you know, we don't need to reiterate racism bad, like we know. Um, but we're also not going to um, say it's okay. It's just, mm -hmm. it's there. It's an aspect of this field that we're studying. You know, unless we, unless we have something new to add to it, let's move on and focus right. on like what we're here for, the storytelling, right. the imagination, the different uh, styles of storytelling and how they connect to the, you know, the works we have today. You know, and I've, I've been happy that um, the guests we've had on who would have the largest bone to pick with the, with the, the canon, uh, I would air quotes around that, have been very thoughtful about it. Um, you know, uh, any one of our recent run of guests, really thoughtful, interesting people. So um so i hope we're providing something of value there but 
let's get away from the self-congratulation well, here a little bit. Well, I, well, I, would, say, I would say you are. And just, uh, just yeah. to, to move away yeah. from that, uh, one last thing, if I may, uh, I just want to pimp someone else's book, uh, Red Man and the Others, <laughs> uh, which I just finished reading. And I love because in part it builds on this canon. And it, it make and it and it's still it's a sword and sorcery novel that is still recognizable as sword and sorcery, though it broadens uh, what you can do with that genre. It makes it more inclusive, but it doesn't make a big, you know, it doesn't turn around and look to the camera like, look how inclusive we're being. Like I assume Five E fan <laughs> would feel they're being, you know. Um, and uh, I just it, it, that book, I just read it recently, and it gave me so much hope for the future of the genre and building on this canon that we're discussing. Mm-hmm. Uh, yeah. So, so yeah, I, I recommend that to the right. That's uh, yeah. by Remco Van Stratton and Angeline Adams, and I highly recommend it. I had. Uh, discovered uh, an earlier version of it last year and i'm so glad that they are uh published and can be found all over the world so yeah and at the time of us recording this our episode with angeline has not had not been released yet but it is the episode right prior to this one so those of you listening uh this was our last episode yeah and i would love to cover the actual book on an episode at some point right, right. um and before we move on to talking about the mask of cthulhu are there any other texts that you would specifically recommend for people to read for inspiration for their gaming? Um, absolutely, although they are newer texts. So I'm kind of going against my, my experience in the archives here. Um, I would recommend, it is a gaming book, but I think it's just so imaginative, even if you never want to run a game ever, uh, In the Veins of the Earth. Mm, um, okay. I, it's just some fan, fantastic reimagining of the whole Underdark uh, thing. Uh, I love that. I've been pulling it out for my uh, players as much as I can. They actually get scared when I pull it out from under the table. Um, and uh, and to that end, I find what something that's been really influencing my uh, games more recently is trying, I've been trying to get better at describing their surroundings. You know, I find it's too easy to default to like, you know, there's some trees and some grass. You know, we've all seen like European fiction TV or whatever. Um, and so I've been looking a lot to the works of Robert McFarlane, who I strongly recommend. If you want to make your use of language more evocative, uh, he has a book called Landmarks, which is a nothing but highly specialized UK regional terms for every like scrub, bush, stream, mountain, you know, et cetera, you can think of. And he also has a book called uh, Underlands, which was probably my favorite book I read in 2019, um, which as the title suggests, is it's, it's kind of his in the veins of the earth, so to speak, it's, except it's his real life adventures going to all kinds of crazy places around the globe that are deep, 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 deep underground. And it's just so evocative. And oh man, you know, your goblins are going to really pop if they're running through you know, an environment you, you describe using what you pull out of these books. So yeah, I, I've been looking at nonfiction, um, current uh, nature stuff, which is so not at all the archive that I was just talking about, but here we are. <laughs> <laughs> no, I mean, I love watching like nature documentaries to like, 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 you know, that's what a lion is. You know, you're always like, oh, it's a lion, right? No, no, that's what a lion is, right? <laughs> exactly, exactly. <laughs> all right, so let's go ahead and take a look at our Hygaxian word of the day. Dubiety. Dubiety. Now, I know Betrachian was all over the place, and so is Cacophony and Cacophonous. Those were all over the place too, but I felt like just the fact that the very first sentence in the very first story contained this like pretty pompous word, I felt like made it necessary for that to be the word I wanted to highlight. So our very first sentence in our very first story is, actually, it began a long time ago. How long? I have not dared to guess. But so far as is concerned, my own connection with the case that has ruined my practice and earned me the dubiety of the medical profession in regard to my sanity, it began with Amos Tuttle's death. And dubiety means the state or quality of being doubtful or uncertain. And Oliver, which edition of the book are you working with today? 
Uh, I'm working with the Ballantine book, Second Printing, from May 1976, uh, printed in Canada, uh, with a cover by Murray Tinkleman, uh, which is like a kind of skull-faced octopi thing floating above the sea. Um, And I would also actually mention, oh, you got it, Uh, Jeff's holding up his. And on the inside, I really like this illustration of basically uh, H.P. Lovecraft, if he was an Easter Island statue with tentacles (laughs) looming over Ah, a graveyard. Like I wonder if that's, nutty, um, you know. that's uh, that looks a lot like Clark Ashton Smith's actual sculptures too, which are alluded to in one of the stories. Um, well, at which uh, I suppose I will mention. Um, I, I, I'm getting ahead of myself a little bit, but I couldn't stop thinking about Lynn Carter while reading this in a lot of ways, and part sure. of that was because. Um, I looked it up. I was curious. I was like, did Lynn Carter and August Derleth ever meet? It turns out they did. Uh, I could send you guys a link. It's no need to read the whole thing here, obviously. But one part of it was um, Lynn Carter admiring the Clark Ashton Smith sculptures at Derleth's house. Uh, oh, there you go. So, yeah, when I saw that pop up in the story, I was like, ah, there we go. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, Amazing. Yeah. And Hoy, what are you working with? Mine is nowhere near as cool. It's the Carol and Graf Omnibus, which also has a tra- uh, Trail of Cthulhu. It's from uh, 1920. Uh, from 2000 and he looks almost like um i guess that's a deep one but it looks a little bit like a cheesy rubber mask so frankly so yeah um, and one of our guests also pointed out um, one of our patrons on the patron book club pointed out that the font of it makes it look very much like it would be like a um a orson scott card or a robert yeah. heinlein kind of sci-fi novel it doesn't exactly. look like it's a horror novel yeah not at all Oh, well, you, you, you dance with the one you, you can find. I just finished my Tales from the Dying Earth on the bus, which has got to be one of the ugliest, least related to the content collections I've ever oh, seen yeah. in my life. Yeah. Oh, yeah. That, that, that cover art has nothing to do with <laughs> right. anything. Right. In a rarity, the science fiction book club version is actually nicer. It has like a Brom painting um, oh. and has a little Brom poster in there. Usually the science fiction book club usually has like really terrible, terrible covers, but my copy was quite nice. So that's, that's a rarity. <laughs> So, Oliver, what are your thoughts on August Durlis' The Mask of Cthulhu? So, I try to come in this with an open mind, because I had never read August Durlis before, but I had heard all about him from friends. Uh, I have read the entire, uh, although it's been a few years, I have read the entire Lovecraftian canon. And as I say, Link Carter just was on my brain while I was reading this, because I was thinking about how they mirror each other. You know, both Durlis and Carter had relationships uh, in one form or another with frankly, more talented, more successful, uh, or more well-known names. But they also kind of serve this wonderful role in the literary canon as being these kind of almost midwives uh, helping carry forward the work of those authors uh, into Mm -hmm. the modern age, right? And I don't need to go on about Carter and the Ace paperbacks. You guys have covered that thoroughly. Uh, I wish I could have been on one of those episodes. No. Uh (laughs) Well, we still have a few. We still have a few to go, Um, so you never know. (laughs) That's true. Um, But, and and, and, I mean, there are some differences. Obviously, Durliff actually knew Lovecraft, and I tried to keep that in mind because of course there was this part of me that wanted to like henpeck at the fact that he you know he many times would say stories were written by hp lovecraft and august derleth but it's like you know he found a napkin that lovecraft wrote tentacle and he he wrote the rest right uh just just as carter would find a napkin that said sword uh you know so uh do a conan story um so i tried to be forgiving and i mean it's true he does you know to his credit in the introduction for the uh, ballantine i don't know if this is in yours hoy uh, he does kind of own, like, all right, you know, he says, uh, introduction, the narratives in this book are manifestly on Lovecraftian themes. Indeed, one of them, The Return of Haster, the very first story, was begun before the death of H.P. Lovecraft. You saw the opening pages, an outline of my proposed development, and in consequence made several suggestions, which were enthusiastically incorporated into the story. So fair enough. He just says, I got feedback. 
on the first story. He doesn't make any great claims for the for the ones in this collection. But right. I was reading how in other other work collections, other works, he would make that kind of you know napkin tentacle thing I just described. Um, right. And it does seem that he was kind of hot for other people's IP. I guess to use the modern terminology. Um, I oh well, I can't stand the name. I, I'm almost saying it out loud. Solar Ponds was his. Right. I, I think you guys are right. familiar. Sherlock his, Holmes. Yeah. <laughs> yeah, and he wrote more of those stories than uh, O'Doyle, Conan uh, O'Doyle. Okay, I can't speak. Sorry, Sir Arthur Conan Doyle wrote of uh, Sherlock. He tried to get the rights from from uh, Conan Doyle. He said nope. Um, and just yeah, I just I guess I wonder about that. Like I always. You know, we. This, this actually comes to how I read the whole book, right? It's not just me trying to like mitigate my sort of um, secondhand prejudice against Sterling, sort of a bad writer who just kind of, you know, said he wrote with Lovecraft, but really, you know, he just looked at bits and pieces. There's also this feeling of like a modern individual looking backwards through the lens of franchise and cinematic universe fatigue. You know, it's not Durla's fault. But of the last 20 years, the grossest, uh, sorry, the uh, highest grossest films, only two of them were original. <laughs> uh, right. And the rest were all sequels or adaptations or sequel adaptations. You know, I mean, I say this as someone who worked at a comic shop for years, who loved all this stuff when I was younger. I loved having like other people's characters show up and other people's stories and big connections to the universe and stuff. But now, I mean, I'm just kind of exhausted. And so when I'm re reading these stories, seeing him refer over and over and over again, kind of nudging you in the ribs and being like, hey, do you remember uh, Innsmouth? Because uh, right. some stuff happened there. <laughs> um, you know, I don't want to ruin it for you, but it was pretty cool. Um, <laughs> I just wanted to be like, why don't I just go read that story? <laughs> you know? right, right. And so then ultimately, were there some highlights for you? Or what did, what did you find once you once you got to that point? I mean, there were parts that I liked in kind of a cheeky way. Like, I really liked the, um, from both a, a writer standpoint and a game master standpoint, uh, I really liked the party line in the Whippoorwills story, mm -hmm. where the main character could literally just pick up the phone and hear the whole neighborhood just chatting, whoever felt like chatting. <laughs> you know what a great way to just like dump exposition you know? right, right. or if you want to have a rumor table in your game just pick right. up the party line see what's happening oh martha's right. talking to billy about whatever right. um and i did most enjoy probably the first story of the return of haster uh despite many quibbles uh and the last story uh the seal of riley which to me felt like a prologue like when it ended i just was like wait no keep going <laughs> like the, right right you know? right uh but we'll get there i guess yeah it was interesting. We had our guest, uh, you know, our Warner Book Club member, Dan Alexander, who was just so vehemently against us. And I had probably the worst. He reaction. said it was the worst fiction he's ever read in his entire life. <laughs> and, and he says he is, was that was that was not him being hyperbolic. Like He's like, I that's it. Literally, this is the worst right, right. fiction I've ever read. Right. Give me I, his email. I'll send him some worse stuff. All right. Well, <laughs> some, one of the other guests. Also, I had possibly the worst reaction you can have to a book, which is that it was just eh, right? <laughs> right. Mm. He's like not hating it or not loving it. So I said, eh. Right. I mean, I think as an author, I would rather have someone hate my book uh, than, I mean, you know, than eh. uh, having said that, I got uh, a kick out of two things in the story. And uh, I, I joked about this, you know, destroying my literary credibility by saying I like, uh, you know, an August Durlis story. I liked the um, something in wood. I got a real kick out of that. The whole <laughs> like the critic, the meta criticism, the guy is just like being like mm. completely hyperbolic about like trashing all these people for being insufficiently, you know, primitive or dark. Um, it felt almost like people going on Twitter and saying something like to the nth degree more than they actually, actually feel because that's how you get clout, right? And the party line thing yes. was also like, oh, I hear all the stuff. This is like, I understand something by hearing people talk about it, but they don't actually say the thing they're talking about. And that also felt like going on Twitter. So, <laughs> so, so I got that kick out of that, of that sort of meta level of those two things. And then just a tiny, tiny, tiny peek through, and it never got through there of 
Durleff mentioning like, a couple of like Midwestern regional artists, and it's like saying like, oh, it would have been really interesting if Durleff had situated this kind of storytelling in a terrain that he was familiar with, because he has no feeling whatsoever for New England. Uh, but if he had talked about the Upper Midwest and tried to situate Lovecraftian storytelling in the Upper Midwest, I'd said, okay, that might have been something. So those are my general reactions. I just didn't hate it, and I felt like these were perfect Call of Cthulhu scenarios. Um, but this collection did not benefit from all these short stories being juxtaposed next to each other because they were all so similar. You know, I would agree with that. And I feel like once we've done the hard work of talking about what's what's good in these collections, I think we can then talk about what our beefs are. <laughs> but, um, but I'm going to go ahead and start by saying that I actually had fun reading these. Which, when I said that, Dan Alexander's jaw like dropped. It literally did. It hit the floor. Yeah. Uh, but yeah, I, I had fun reading these. But I will also acknowledge that um, I like bad things. <laughs> <laughs> and also, like I, I enjoyed it the way I enjoy watching an episode of Tales from the Crypt. Or I enjoy watching an episode of the original TV show, The Dar- uh, Dark Shadows. These are things that like I, I genuinely love. Um, they are not particularly well made, but they are fun and they are enjoyable and they're easy to digest. Um, but I also want to give him some credit where credit's due. And I feel like there was some kind of interesting things that was happening here with the way in which he would show us how aware the characters are of the supernatural things that are happening to them and the way that they're describing to us what has happened. And what I mean by that is in the second story, The Whippoorwills in the Hills. We have a character who, like in many of the stories, moves into a house. The house had previous, its previous occupants had been bad people. And um, and them hillbillies who can't talk too good are coming around to tell them that like, a bunch of bad folk used to live there. <laughs> uh- <laughs> I, I, I loved their accent, quote unquote, and how it was written out phonetically. It was amazing. Uh, <laughs> yeah. Uh, yeah, but um, but what I thought was really a, what a, really effective though is there's the scene where he goes to sleep and he wakes up in the morning, and when he wakes up, he's talking about how there are like a bunch of rust stains on his clothes. We all know that's blood. You got blood on your clothes, dude. But he's describing it as rust stains. And by the end of the story, he doesn't fully understand what's happened. And he's in a padded cell being like, it was the whippoorwills. It was the whippoorwills. It wasn't the whippoorwills. <laughs> um, but then in my favorite story in the collection, the, the house in the valley, here we have basically the same, the basically the same setup. Um, but we've got the character waking up knowing this is blood on my clothes. And he also wakes up at one point in in in, um, in like the subterranean tunnel and he hears screams. And then when he hears that, that a, a boy's been missing, he's like, oh, I did that. Like, that's me. Um, and then in the end of the story, you know, he's fully like serving Cthulhu and he's, but although he doesn't, believe the stories that they're saying about like what he was doing to that corpse that they saw him doing. Uh, But I thought it was cool that, that Durlith gave this character, the knowledge that that was blood on his clothes when he was somebody who understood what was happening to him much better than this other character is like, Oh, this must be rust. And it's the whippoorwills that are responsible. I thought that was kind of cool. 
Yeah, you know, it's true. that I like that. And I must admit, I um, I liked how he played with um, the perception of the main character as well in The Seal of Riley, uh, where they sort of, you know, that one almost felt like a, like a Lovecraftian speed run in the sense that he checked, checked, ticked off a lot of the tropes on like the first half of the first page, which was refreshing after all the previous uh, cha- uh, chapters. <laughs> um, but, but as soon as he gets to like, okay, he's at the house. Okay, good. Um, uh, he finds that, uh, that ring. Mm. Right. When he puts it on, he feels his obvious deep one heritage a lot more closely. And it's this kind of like almost sensorial overlay mm-hmm. uh, that I really, really liked. You know, and, and, was- and he does it through the perspective of the character who is your POV person, as opposed to just saying like he saw fish more or whatever. Um, so, yeah, so that's true. There, there are literary merits to this story. I'm probably being going to be too hard on it. But yeah. <laughs> I mean, the overlay is the exact right word I would use. So we had discussed some of the sameness that's happening from story to story, um, but we haven't hit on all of them yet. So I'm like, I'm, so I'm curious, Oliver, are, are there other things that you noticed that were going from story to story? Because I've got a list of things I've noticed. Yeah, well, like I say, I mean, I, I literally thought about a video game speedruns when I got to the uh, last uh, chapter because it worked through all those all those items so quickly in the first page and it was gratifying because in all the previous ones, you know, set in New England, like Hoy, I think you made a great point about how maybe could have played two places he knew better. Mm-hmm. Um, I think that would have been cool and provide a variety. Um, you know, an observer protagonist telling us this in the past tense, uh, studying the notes of a dead man. The trip to the pile of books, almost always the same pile of books, uh, started to really kill me. Mm-hmm. I mean, in my yeah. notes, I was writing down like Necronomicon, drink, uh, Unspeakable Culton, drink. You know, <laughs> um, <laughs> you know, that kind of thing. Panoptic Also, how order. many copies are there of this book? Right, right. <laughs> yeah, like, no, yeah, I thought, that, yeah, especially because early one of the stories says there's only three copies of the Necronomicon in the Western Hemisphere. And I'm like, yeah, but one of them is getting really passed around. Right. Well, you know, Miskatonic is like the Merrill, you know, it's just there. It's a public resource. And actually, I think, oh, shoot, I should have written this down, but I think it is in the Whippoorwills or maybe it was um, something uh, in the wood. One of the middle stories, again, this is what makes it hard to discuss because they're so similar, uh, but one of the middle stories, it opens with actually uh, the perspective of a librarian at Miskatonic U sitting with the other librarians having lunch. And I was like, I want to read this story. I want to read about <laughs> yeah, I want to read about the librarians and Miskatonic you just being like, oh, what did you do yesterday? Well, this guy came in, he was kind of green and snarly, and I let him read the ancient text because that's what we do. Uh, <laughs> you know, um, Un- unfettered excess. Right, right. Yeah, my God. Uh, you know, the only the only time it had any real novelty to it was, I think it was the last one. I think it was uh, House. Uh, oh, sorry, let me see here. Yeah, I think it was the House in the Valley where um, he, instead of visiting Miskatonic you for the upteenth time, we found uh, what it was like the sort of semi-literate uh, dead ancestors omnibus of excerpts that he had copied from those texts that he had right. some So it was still yeah. meta because he still had gone to Miskatonic. You just didn't have yeah. the actual trip to Miskatonic. <laughs> but, but at least the, the text our character was encountering abound in wood. Like, yeah. it was like, okay, this is at least adding some texture right. to this thing that I've just watched done in four previous stories. And we'll see again. Who knows? Um, but yeah, other than that, houses inherited or rented. I meant to do a tally before we started recording because that's every single story. Right. I wonder how many were owned versus rented. And actually, I couldn't help myself. I was joking on Twitter uh, yesterday about how, like, as a broke millennial reading these stories, I just imagine it's like, you know, oh, I've inherited a house. Great. And then Lovecraft kind of swoops in like, oh, but it'll drive you mad and turn you into a frog person. But I get to keep the house? <laughs> yeah. <laughs> right, <exactly. laughs> Great. But you'll turn into a frog. It's like, you have an equity. You know? <laughs> right, so yeah. Exactly. <laughs> right. join, join, the, join the property class. Yeah. 
Yeah, uh, yeah, get me on the property ladder. I don't care if, and this was the last thing I could think of in the checkbox list, was uh, even if there's a secret basement with a gateway to the sea or waterways in general. We encountered yep. that in at least three stories. And wet foot and the sounds of like wet footsteps that are happening. like right. uh, The wet door, the wet doorknobs. <laughs> wet doorknobs. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> um, also, just like how you scratch the surface in New, in, in New England and apparently like you find out that like almost everybody seems to know about Cthulhu and mm. Shubnigaroth and like. Well, Jeff, uh, uh, I do have to tell you, we do. <laughs> <laughs> exactly. Uh, we discovered they all know about it, just nobody talks about we, it, and we, it's like we do. <laughs> well, and 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 also, there's an ambiguity about whether or not uh, everybody knows of those stories, or whether they're real, or both. You know, I think it was in the last story, but definitely one of the last two, where it's mentioned that Lovecraft was a, is in the in the canon of the story you're reading. Lovecraft is a real person who really wrote everything he wrote, mm-hmm. uh, and it is suggested that he died at a relatively young age because he wrote spooky stuff. I don't know; it doesn't get very specific. Right? Um, yeah. but it's very. Again, it was one of those very Q and So well, yeah. It's, and, <laughs> <laughs> and it's a, it's a fun idea, but again, it's this kind of franchise fatigue, connectivity fatigue thing for me that kind of kicked me out of the story. And also, it just made me think of another better story. I don't know if you guys have read Alan Moore's Providence. Oh, yeah. It's terrific. Um, yeah. That's, yeah, yeah, where yeah. it's literally like, what if Lovecraft stuff was real? And we have this great hook of the main character running around, and he, you know, he, he talks to Pickman's model, and Pickman's model is like, "I'm gonna eat you." Wait a sec, are you Barry? And he's like, "Oh uh, yeah, oh 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 oh, honey, oh no, yeah. uh, sorry, man, I'm so sorry, I'm so sorry. Why are you saying that? Don't mind me. I'm just gonna, you know, I'm gonna go eat somebody else. Good right. luck." Right. <laughs> you know? and, and like, I, uh, that's all I want to say to, to not ruin that story. But like, it just, yeah, like the fact that this book is making me think of other authors, and then I just kind of like wander off, like it's not a good good move and like um sorry i feel like i'm taking over but it just made me think of like probably my main spear through the heart of um of this book and and derleth was that he felt like an and this is so mean i'm sorry dead man uh he felt like an anti-horror novelist to me in the sense that like Okay, it's not his fault I'm a guy reviewing the book, and that's one layer of remove, right? But like with horror, you you want to be immersed, you want to be in it, you want to forget almost that you're reading a book or watching a movie or whatever. And he just kept reminding me, whether it was, um, you know, constantly reminding me of other authors' works, uh, including Simon Lovecraft, like I just mentioned, uh, reminding me that none of this is real. The fact that I think Derleth maybe didn't have a lot of faith in his writing, so he, there was a lot of kind of nudging me in the ribs and going like, you know, the protagonist saying, I entered the room, it seemed very spooky. Um, oh, <laughs> you know, or or and this is a this is a great one at the end of not one but I think at least two of the stories when it gets to the final page the final few paragraphs here's the big payoff man here's where you find out that it was a tentacle all along um, all italics. All yeah, right. just to yeah. be like you know so he's like he's turning the volume up a little bit so you really know this, this is messed goes up can you believe this this goes to 11 uh, yeah <laughs> yeah so, I, so so yeah with all those things I just kind of felt like there was like 10 layers of glass between me and the horror I never right. felt scared alright so I have um, a yeah I have kind of a layered question this. so for better for worse we've listened to uh, we're now coming up on episode 100 and we've read something like 20, maybe close to 30 authors. I don't know if we've read every single Appendix N author yet, but I would say that for, for better or for worse, they do have a literary voice. And that, I feel, is not here in this book. I don't feel, get any sense of like what Durlet's concerns, uh, his interests, his, his neuroses. I mean, like Clark Ashton Smith is inimitably Clark Ashton Smith. Uh, Lovecraft is Lovecraft, uh, you know, all these author authors. Um, so you, as an author, how hard is it to find voice? And then, you know, is that 
especially if you're writing in the mode of someone else. Well, I mean, first, I'll just say uh, I completely agree with your point. I couldn't tell you what their list concerns are or anything like that. I mean, say what you will for Lynn Carter's Garth Marenghi-esque, you know, all, all authors who use subtext are cowards, you know, approach. Um, at least, like, I know what his deal is. Um, so to your question, sorry. Um, I mean, in terms of writing in my own voice, uh, for better and for worse, uh, I always seem to sound like me. <laughs> People always seem to recognize me when I'm talking or in any format. So I guess I, that's not a very great, a great answer, but I've just been lucky and uh, that my voice seems to always been something that comes through pretty clearly. That said, um, I, of course, like all authors, when I first started figuring my stuff out, was trying to copy voices I really liked. I mentioned my William Gibson fetish in my role-playing games. I also uh, was like... Practically every white guy in his early to mid-20s, you got to read a Hunter S. Thompson, it seems. Um, so, you know, I'm I, I trying to do a bad imitation of him. Um, and with those, I found I would just uh, I would just read, you know, Hunter S. Thompson and then sit down and have it just kind of buzzing in my head, make sure it was at the forefront, and then thunder out some words and then kind of review it and be like, okay, how does this look uh, by comparison? I mean, plainly, Derleth uh, was reading everything he could get his hands on with Lovecraft and had met the man. Uh, yeah. So... His seeming failure to replicate the voice, it just makes me think, uh, why do I make the internet hate me? It makes me think of Zack Snyder. Um, because <laughs> uh, I think about Watchmen, I think about 300. I haven't watched much after that because I just got sick of his stuff. But with Zack Snyder, I found he was very, very good at looking at what was the surface of the thing that was really cool. Like, you know, you see those uh, photos of him on set with the actual copy of Watchmen all thumbed through. Like, he's really making it look like Watchmen. But then he like completely misses like what you know those works are commenting on or their subtext, you know, um, and it's very frustrating. Uh, and then in, in in this like you know he's working through the checklist. You got the house, you got the the inheritance, you got the guy goes mad by the end, and he and he tells you at the beginning I went mad, but let me tell you how you know, and so on and so forth. All that stuff we've just mentioned. Um, but whatever the heart and soul is of Lovecraft, it's not it's not really there. And in fact, this comes back to my sort of mean spirited anti horror author comment because he also seems to do other things to undo the voice of Lovecraft, which also undoes the horror for, you know, I feel like some of this was covered in your previous Thriller episode, so I'll be quick, but it's like, he does many things to demystify or codify what is supposed to be the terrifying unknown. If yeah. Cthulhu is codified as like, well, he's a water elemental, like, well, right away, he's, <laughs> right away you just bored me. Yeah. He's, not, he's not as interesting or mysterious. Right. If the there is a, um, you know, quotidian notion of good versus evil injected into the mythos, well, the Lovecraftian mythos, one of the greatest cornerstones of it is it rejects the yeah. ideas of good and evil yep. and that all human notions of the universe are nonsense and the way Cthulhu yep. would wipe us out is not in some uh, heaven versus hell battle but by rolling over in his sleep right. uh, exactly. then, <laughs> you know one, one big butt cheek would just go on the human race and that's it um, you know, <laughs> and so and so and, those and aren't pillows that, he, <laughs> <You know>? yeah <laughs> on top of that you know finally I'll say he he, um, he makes these big scary gods something that can be defeated mm-hmm. yeah. and that drives me crazy because sure. True. We, we, we throw some dynamite on Cthulhu's head and he ducks back into the earth. Yeah, we throw some dynamite at him, or if we're really lucky, the good gods, the elder gods, will, like at the end of the very first story, you know, you, finally you get this title match or something with Cthulhu and Haster popping up, and I was like, okay, well, I would win the whole story for this. And then the elder gods came down, there was a lot of light, the elder gods took care of them, I watched it happen. Anyway, cool story, bro, next one. Right, um, right. <laughs> you know, like, what is, I mean, what is the point of trying right. to scare me if you're just going to be constantly reassuring me that, like, it's fine, they're all asleep, right. they're underneath these seals uh and and they're codified like animals patrician um right. and uh, <laughs> yeah but that's so, very so, uh, just D though the, the desire to categorize stuff you know, <laughs> you know yeah yeah it's interesting that durleth would then mentor 
or introduced two writers who were almost op- opposite, both British. Uh, Brian Lumley, who was very much in the Derlethian tradition of categorizing and, you know, good and evil. And, you know, Cthulhu has a good brother, actually, who looks exactly like him, a twin brother, you know. Um, when I read that, I thought of when Godzilla has a kid in the right. 70s movies. Anyway, sorry, go on. <laughs> right. But then alternately, he also mentored Ramsey Campbell, who was all about the ambiguity, right? And so it's interesting that he at least, I think, could recognize like talent and good writing and he was well regarded for his non lovecraftian stuff i mean he got a guggenheim grant and you know he was well on his way to be considered like you know like the bard you know poet laureate of the upper midwest you know for his regional writings um but this is what he's known for and this is the stuff that remains in print whereas all of his other stuff is can't be found other than his solar pond stuff so sure and I'm I'm loving this conversation we're having, but I, I don't want to give short shrift to the gaming side of this conversation. So I'm going to go ahead and do a forced segue to the gaming side of the conversation and say, like, um, you know, since Oliver, since you are a Call of Cthulhu keeper and you're reading this like Call of and you're reading this like Cthulhu mythos stuff in this book, did you feel like there was stuff in here that was like that you could mine for your games that could actually be fun and useful things? Yeah, I think so. I kind of made a little quick list here. I mean, I already said the party line. I love that. Just pick up the phone and get some rumors. Cool. Uh, you know, I like the house in the valley with Bud Perkins. What I wrote down as quote the warning yokel, um, who <laughs> you know the the NPC who just comes up and hollers at you uh, with exposition, but also becomes a ticking clock every time Bud shows up. It's your way of knowing, like, oh, shit, you know, stuff's getting a little more real. Um, you know, I like the talk of psychic residue uh, on page one ninety. Uh, sorry, one twenty six, whichever story that was. Sorry, um, and just the idea of getting across to people instead of saying, you know, isn't this room spooky? Saying, well, actually, this room, like like an elemental force of spookiness, <laughs> uh, is dripping off of it, and you're picking it up. And maybe the more you pick it up, like actually, oh, you know, that reminds me of one of my favorite game related things I ever was told about Call of Cthulhu before I even played it the first time. A friend described it to me. He said. Um, everything that rewards you in D&D will ruin your life in Call of Cthulhu. If you kick kick open every door, if you try to kill every monster, if you try to take every magic item, and if you try to read every book, you will be just blasted to atoms. And I love that. I love that kind of just inversion. Um, And so, yeah, like I think part of that is a psychic residue kind of thing. It's like this clue that you're getting onto stuff, but it's not a good thing. Uh, So, yeah, like it's a double-edged sword kind of deal. Um, And then, you know, the books in various languages, uh, this that came up a few times, but I've got it down here. Once page one sixty in the Seal of Riley, uh, I just like to think a lot about language as a gateway, and you know, and how it can open up uh, new content in the story, and whether or not a character is even literate in some fantasy stuff. Mm-hmm. Uh, you know, I think that's like a great tool. Uh, again, probably even discussed before the ring. I love the ring as a kind of almost augmented reality device uh, that a character can put on, and I like the challenge of a GM trying to describe simultaneous reality or reality and then reality plus to mm. the table sure where, like, five of you get reality but one of you gets like reality plus right. uh and you're you're seeing frogs and getting te- you know thoughts about your heritage and all that stuff um and trying to run that table so i've got a question for you one of the kind of derlithian things that we keep coming up here is this you know in each of these stories we're dealing with characters who are being possessed by either dead things or things that are kind of like extra extra living with like <laughs> somewhere in that in between now, do you feel like that there is an interesting way that you could incorporate that particular kind of theme or or or, or storyline in a Call of Cthulhu game? 
Yeah, I think so. I mean, it kind of makes me think of how you can kind of mess with the players in DCC by having many of them with patrons pulling their strings and then having to try and both work towards the party's goals, but also serving the patrons' wants and needs and desires. To that end of this, I guess the equivalent would be certainly like, um, I think some player people call it blue booking, where you just like write down lots of little notes and hand them around the table to various people and give mm-hmm. them on. And that's how you kind of get their reality plus going, I suppose. Mm. And so uh, I would just say up front, look, guys, you guys are all going to be manipulated, but just really try and uh, respect the player knowledge character knowledge divide and we'll have a great time so then you can as you have if you have that player buy-in up front and then start handing people notes saying like you start remembering your uh relative who ate a guy's face you didn't know he ate a guy's face you kind of want to eat a guy's face um you know and that kind of thing uh like i remember i did do that actually one of my last delta green games i had a guy who didn't realize he was a deep one ancestor of course um and so yeah i just started just handing him notes with little descriptions of memories and, and i and i and a little underneath the little description of his sort of like cinematic i guess you could say i would just say have fun with this <laughs> um and and he did uh you know he, he picked the right moment ate a guy's face perfect, um perfect. but uh, but in the help build it up so yeah i think absolutely absolutely it just requires uh as i say player buy-in up front and and having people who are really good at the player knowledge character knowledge uh divine right right and you know obviously it, it, in a game like delta green or call of cthulhu that's it's part of the texture it's a little harder in your sort of vanilla D to sort of do that and um you know it's like, no, 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 I want to be here. I, I don't want to have any of this thing where I, I lose some sort of degree of agency, right? But, you know, it's... Well, yeah, and that plays into one thing that I had suggested in our patron book club, which is that, um, you know, one of the things you could potentially do, and I also feel like this could work in a D&D game too, potentially, is like, you know, the, the, the GM just kind of sends a direct message to Oliver and it's like, hey, Oliver, your character has now been possessed by, uh, by this person. Here's a paragraph about this person. Play with it, have fun. Um, and 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 the person who's possessing you is trying not to get caught. Um, so so now, like you know, it you 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 get to be kind of an active role in that. But then another thing that we had talked about is like potentially another thing you could do in a situation like this, for maybe like a more Call of Cthulhu game, is if you have a group of people coming in, maybe there was like a group of cultists who had been like trying to raise this 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 um, this um, old one, and when you all fall asleep you all wake up in the morning with rust stains on your clothes and you're all exhausted and you're all trying to figure out why you're so exhausted and why you have rust stains on your clothes. Like that could also potentially be interesting. Oh, for sure. And I mean, I think even in D&D or, or you know, OSR, uh, DCC stuff, like, it's, it's, again, it's just sort of player buy-in, but I guess it's true, right? If players want to just, you know, I want to be the hero and, and have lots of wish fulfillment, this is not for them. Yeah, but right. if they are, if, they, if they're willing to play more in service of the greater story, then for sure. Right. And of course, yeah, the other big difference is as the more experienced, you know, sort of jams i think we all are we know to get the player in on it and have them have fun whereas i think when you're a younger player uh jam and you don't really know what you're doing yet you'll be like i'm taking over your character for the next i don't know hour please keep paying attention to the table <laughs> and that goes poorly of right. course so of course. i think yeah you know, it's it. yeah and i i think uh, you know i mean i don't want it to get a system more but i think dcc it's easier to get that kind of buy-in because people already know that dcc is like a very swingy wild game and it would be harder to do in uh, a vanilla fifth edition you can certainly do it in fifth edition or these other games but you that's that's where you really have to like set some time aside and have a session zero or whatever the appropriate sort of discussions you have with the players but people come to a dcc game expecting a certain you know amount of wonkiness especially with the corruption tables and all that stuff like that that goes on there so yeah, yeah, and all the death and funnels. My friend yeah. Tom, whenever I run in, and that, I'll, I'll roll a die and be like, oh no, something bad's about to happen. And he'll just look at me and be like, hey man, throw rocks on me. I, I won't give me. <laughs> <laughs> so, you know, it's DCC, man, crush me. Right. Uh, <laughs> now, 
Um, August Derleth is specifically cited by Gary Gygax. He doesn't tell us what to read, but he tells us that we should read um, August Derleth for inspiration. What are we coming to August Derleth to find? I don't know. <laughs> no, I, uh, I'm sorry. I, obviously, listeners can't see this. I started to look very panicked um, as Jeff was asking that. I, um, I You're mean, like, I don't have a note card about that. <laughs> yeah, yeah. We're not, we're, ah, my notes cards. Um, good grief. Well, uh, no, I, it's a great question, but this is where I remember I mentioned at the top of the episode, um, I'm finding my way into D&D ass backwards. And like, I've been learning a lot of the history and reading about it, but I didn't have those formative like red box uh, experiences and so forth uh, sure. as a young man. Uh, that being said i'm gonna give it my best you know um i um oh gee i mean i know deep ones show are literally in the stat bricks for dcc uh were were deep ones in the earliest uh dnd books they're in deities and demigods right. um what one thing that i think is interesting and i don't think this is why gygax included it but i think it's an interesting thing to look at is that you know in original dnd alignment was law versus chaos and here's Gary Gygax forcing the good versus evil access into that. Yeah. And we also have August Derleth, who's taken the mythos and forcing the good versus evil <laughs> conflict yeah. into that as well. Yeah. Literally said in one of the stories, I just remembered, he literally says in one of the stories, that like, you know, the character's talking about reading about uh, Cthulhu religion stuff, but he's like, as with all religions, there is good versus evil, heaven versus hell. I'm like, what are you talking about? <laughs> <laughs> uh, so, but yeah, there's the, um, there was a lot of... Uh, I guess he would have very. Really, I, I do remember thinking Gygax would have really vibed with the codification. Each god's an elemental. Each god has an anti-god that can beat him up. Each god, evil god has a seal that keeps him in his place. What's his place? Well, it's somewhere that vibes with his element. Um, right. You know, so yeah. like it's yeah. Like, yeah, Especially by the time AD&D. It's a very, very codified. Here are the planes. These are the planes that are very specifically like this. Um, yeah. You cannot access them until you're yeah. level 10 or yeah. whatever. Yeah. yeah. <laughs> I just had a light bulb moment with this. So Gygax includes H.P. Lovecraft. And in H.P. Lovecraft, you know, the characters, they don't survive these things ever. They have no way of dealing with these entities. In Durlith, you do have a way of dealing with these entities. Right. So maybe that's why Gygax was interested in including, in including Durlith, because in Durlith, there is a way for the insignificant human being to actually stop this great evil. Right. Yeah, and yes. I bet like Durlith, Gygax fixated on the one story I can think of where you kind of have a wizard who wins with knowledge, uh, Dunwich Horror. Yeah, sure. Mm -hmm. yeah. Right? That's where the Elder Sign pops up. Uh, you know, so yeah, yeah. Right. I think also, uh, I mean, again, this, the, that Upper Midwest connection that they have, so that's sort of like, you know, okay, everything's fair, the things, you know, kind of work. You know, again, for, you know, a het white guy, although there's signs that uh, Durlith might have been bisexual, but that's very kind of low, low-key information. Um, oh. Yeah. Uh, Bobby Derry had mentioned that, and what that someone else had mentioned that. So he's, he doesn't necessarily give it a huge amount of credence. But um, the other thing I think is that one thing that we forget is that yeah, there were other authors working on you know the mythos stories, but there was not the sort of everything is mythos all around us. Right now, I could go down to like Seven Eleven and get like you know a Pez Cthulhu dispenser or something like that, you know, mm. <laughs> right? And so that. Uh, okay, I'm done with Lovecraft. What else is there left? Well, some Durleth. I guess it's the same thing. You know, I can just read this the same way that, you know, 
if you wanted to read Conan, you had to read, you know, Lynn Carter, you more Conan, you had to read some Lynn Carter and else break the camp, oh, you know, in the seventies, yeah. you know, so <laughs> well, also in the seventies, if you wanted to read any Conan, almost all of the collections also had else break the camp and right. Lynn Carter stories. So like, and, yeah. and, and they didn't do a great job of telling you which ones were, exactly. or whose exactly. stories. So, so I think that was part of it. I think that, okay, like I love, I like the, I, this Lovecraftian thing, but the, the fine honed distinction between what is like truly understandably Lovecraftian, you know, what our understandings of Lovecraft are as opposed to, you know, the, the trappings. And so Durleth yeah. had certainly had the trappings. So that's, I think that's, I think one, one area where he might've said, Oh, like, yeah, I like Durleth. You know, he's more Lovecraft, more, more of the same, you know? Although I will say Adam did a great job of pointing out that like, this is our first Lovecraftian story where we've got a romance. Yeah, that's true. The last one. <laughs> yeah, yeah. Yeah. Well, and that's the thing. I mean, to come back and try and say something a little nice about Durleth, like the seal of Riley. I liked it, not just because it worked through the tropes fast on page one, as I kept saying, but also, yeah, it gets into, like, he just accepts his identity pretty quickly. Like, oh, I guess I'm a deep one. Yeah, I'm a deep one. Ooh, uh, that sort of frog-faced girl. Uh, oh, she's a mermaid. Oh, no, wait, she's a deep one. We're deep ones, yay! Right, right. And then we get this, like, fast-forward in the back in the story of them just, like, we rent a boat and we go to the Polynesian Islands to try and find Cthulhu. Right. What a lovely time we have. <laughs> you know, uh, we, 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 Credits we roll. Nude. Right. Yeah, yeah. And, and I was so annoyed when it just sort of cut from that to, like, you know, a, a boilerplate end of story newspaper article being like, oh, this boat sent one somewhere and these two people vanished. What was with that? I'm like, no, no, stay with their point of view right. and go forward another hundred pages. I want to see them find Cthulhu. I want to see, like, stuff happen with, like, take, sw- like flip the pers- perspective and tell a new story. Yeah, no, if you're going to yeah. codify it, do something interesting with that codification. Right. Yeah, yeah, yeah. I would like to see, like, a, uh, yeah, if the romance, it would be like, um, one of those uh, late period uh, Audrey Hepburn movies, <laughs> you know, but but Lovecraftian. <laughs> oh, are, oh, no. are we going to find out that's what happened to Natalie Wood? <laughs> was Natalie Wood a deep one? <laughs> oh, oh man maybe that was yeah. in poor taste yeah. um, bre- bre- breakfast at cthulhu's yeah <laughs> like yeah i uh but that's, yeah so it's time for us to start wrapping this up oliver do you have any last thoughts about the mask of cthulhu that you feel like you really need to like share with us i like how you shook your fist um yeah no i think i've beaten him up enough like the guy's <laughs> dead. he's already dead um yeah i just i august uh, yeah. <laughs> <laughs> well, I was well. I mean, it's preparation for this. I was talking to my friend who knows Durla so much better, and, and I'd also bought on some Lynn Carter rants with him. And he sort of joked. He's like, "Do you want me to like dig up his skull so you can take a whiz in it?" And I'm like, "No, no, no." We're not. <laughs> I was, and, I, and, I, and I said to him, "I said to him, I said, Lynn Carter, maybe, uh, but Durla, no, because you know what." As much as his prose irritates me, as much as just the name Solar Pawns, like, why don't I'm, I'm going to go write my own crappy detective called Pubic Moms and just like, <laughs> <laughs> so something about Solar Pawns is so phonetically irritating to me. Um, but yeah, so even though there's all these things about him that make me go off on a tear, I am grateful to him for having, uh, you know, created Arkham Publishing and, and preserved Lovecraft's work yeah. for all the reasons that you would want to preserve Lovecraft's work, uh, despite the incandescent bigotry, which I, you know, to his credit, I was on the lookout for that. I was like, where's the racism? Uh, as, we were, as I was reading through this, and there was only one part, I can't remember, but it was just like a little side mention about like European minority problems. And I was like, ah, oh, there we go. Okay. But that was it. So to his credit, to his credit, I guess, I mean, it's a low bar. Um, it was, it was uh, no racism, really. Uh, but yeah. Um, 
So, yeah, I guess it's, it's what I've read so far. He seems a bit more progressive than Lovecraft. I'm glad he kept Lovecraft stuff alive. And as you say, like about, you know, paying his forward with his mentorship. I think, I think like Glenn Carter, you know, they're, as writers, they're good editors. Um, and I, that's usually a very backhanded slap to say. Um, and, and I mean, I haven't read his, his actually good stuff, boy. I'm actually, I, I did read about some of it and it looks yeah. interesting. Uh, his more regional stuff. Um, but you know what? Like these kinds of quirky sort of midwife characters in the, in the, in the literary canon, they're valuable people and i and i appreciate it and also to Durless credit he actually met and worked with lovecraft and lovecraft actually encouraged people to play with his toys yeah unlike howard who was dead right <laughs> and, and, and could have no say in carter's uh, shenanigans with like you know here's an ancient egypt story what if it was conan right uh you know right right so i would say that would i have read this book if i didn't have to read it for this uh podcast i don't think so i think i would have gotten through the first story and been like okay and then put it down <laughs> So yeah, sorry. I don't know if I can recommend it, but I, I, it is an important part of the canon. If I were studying uh, to write a paper or to write my own Lovecraftian novels, I would I would look at Durleth. I think it's worth looking at the hackier writers as well as the ones who are canonically excellent. Uh, yeah, great thought. Uh, all right, so Oliver, um, as we wrap up, are there where do can people find you? Are there any projects that you want to let people know about? Uh, well, I mean, uh, as I mentioned at the top, uh, we, we just did our first season of The Unknown Worlds of the Merrill Collection, a genre interview and discussion podcast uh, with a focus on how the history connects to the present uh, and where we're going beyond that. Uh, we're actually just starting to get our ducks in a row and line up guests for a second season, and I'm hoping to do one where we'll uh, do a topic I want to call just Beyond Lovecraft. How do we go past him? What, what is that going to entail? Obviously, we have Lovecraft Country and a couple of other texts, but it feels like it's still kind of the great Wild West. Mm-hmm. Uh, so I'm, I'm looking forward to doing that one in, in uh, season two. Um, you can find it all, you know, just put unknown worlds of the into iTunes or anywhere, you know, great podcasts are sold. It's free. Um, and, uh, you can also go to unknownworlds.podbean.com. Uh, as far as me, uh, I always have a bunch of stuff on the go. So it's best to just find me on Twitter at O'Brackenbury. B-R-A-C-K-E-N-B-U-R-Y. Or you can find my website, which is just my name, oliverbrackenbury.com. Uh, luckily, my name is unique enough. I seem to own the first page of Google Matches. So if you just thud Oliver Birkenberg into Google, you should get me. Um, <laughs> and, uh, yeah, you know, like I write books. My, my first novel is a horror novel, Junkyard Leopard. So maybe people listening to this episode might be intrigued and see if they can mash it as bad as I've mashed uh, Durleth. Um, and actually, my next book I'm working on is going to be a sword and sorcery novel, heavily influenced in part by uh, studying at the Merrill Collection and studying this fine podcast listening to your discussions of uh conan and all the other good stuff um so yeah uh, otherwise right, uh, i've swore this is the year i'll write, write a dcc module uh i've got two <laughs> finals we'll see, we'll, we'll see what happens um and yeah but as i say do yes find me on twitter uh, at O'Brackenbury and my website oliverbrackenbury.com and from there you can just hop out to all the stuff but yeah terrific all right uh just before we mention all our contact information we do have our poll for the next books so i think we're going to look at Women adventurers. So we will have um, uh, possibilities: uh, C.J. Sherry, Gate of Ivrel, C.L. Moore, Jarell Ojoari, Joanna Russ, Picnic on Paradise, which uh, also found in the uh, uh, anthology Adventures of Alex, and then uh, Jessica Amanda Samuelson, Tomoe Gozen, which is also revised as the disfavored hero. All right, so that poll should be up soon, and go and vote. There Very you go. cool. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. This is this is my sorry. I'm pointing at my copy of Journal of I really want to hear you guys talk about it. <laughs> That's my vote. All right. 
And we've also, the um, the poll for episode 102 has closed. So Michael Shea's Nift the Lean is the winner for episode 102. Right. I am very happy about that. I'm a little sad about the other books, but we can't read all four on the same podcast. So they will, they will be revisited. So yeah, all, all three of them could find their way into future polls. So we'll right. see. But um, yeah, speaking of our Patreon, our patrons get to join us for our patron book clubs before we have our special guests on. And uh, today we were joined by Dan Alexander, Robbie Fioto, and Adam Styers. We had a really fun conversation with those three folks. I would also like to give a, th- um, a special shout out to a few of our other patrons. Thank you to Robert, um, to Eric Johnson, Robert Coleman, Brian Rumble, CY, Noah Green, and Vixter. Thank you for your support. And suddenly I feel like I'm forgetting something. Am I forgetting something, Hoy? Oh, it's just our regular contact information, which we missed. So uh, if you uh, like us, rate us and review us on your podcatcher of choice. It does help people find us. Uh, You can give us feedback at appendixnbookclub at gmail.com or find us on Twitter at at appendix underscore n. All right. See you in the stacks. Um, Let's let's, let's thank Oliver. Oh, yeah, of course. All right. (laughs) Poor guy, you know, if you want to pummel, uh, go find Oliver and ask him to pummel uh, Durla some more. <laughs> or pummel me. It's okay. I've got a thick skin. <laughs> <laughs> Thank you well, so much, Oliver. It's been an honor. Yeah, it's oh, been so I, much I, fun. I'm so happy to finally be on here. I think I've been listening to you guys finally be on here, like it was expected. I'm happy to be on here uh, because it's been two years of listening and loving the show and wishing I could come on. So that's what I mean by finally. <laughs> <laughs> awesome. All right. See you in the stacks. Read on. The library is closed. <laughs>